gospel. Let's pray once again. Father, we're so grateful that your word teaches us when Jesus said, which of you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children? How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You demonstrate in this very passage, Father, that you are a giver of lavish gifts. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit this morning. We ask that you would please give us your spirit in this time together. Please keep your promise to us. We need your word to shed light into our darkness, to bring life to the dead, to feed us. We are hungry this morning. So come and by the power of your Holy Spirit, open the truth to us and open us to the truth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, it is back to school season, as has been mentioned, and hopefully, kids, you didn't have any tests to take in your first three days back at school this week, although I'm sure some of you did, and for that, I'm sorry. But this morning we have another test, so if you didn't get your test this week, you got your test today. Because this passage in Exodus 16 is all about the Lord testing his people. We began our journey through or back through Exodus. We took the summer off, but we resumed our journey through Exodus last week. And we saw the Lord's purpose in bringing them into the wilderness. Remember, we left off last spring in Exodus 15 where the the Lord's people were singing in triumph as they were delivered from bondage in Egypt and had witnessed the burying of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And they were on the other side and they were having quite the party and celebration. And then we see that the Lord had a purpose for them before he brought them to Sinai, the place where he would give them his law and make a covenant with them. Nevertheless, here we have the wilderness journey from Exodus 15 through 19. And so the next several weeks, we're going to be journeying with the people of Israel as they journey through the wilderness. And as I mentioned last week, I'll say it again this week, that this wilderness journey has one primary purpose, really two primary purposes. The main purpose is so that the Egyptian, rather the Israelites, will know that the Lord is the Lord. He's going to convince them by the way he provides for them and cares for them that he is a God who can be trusted and should be followed and walked with. But he does that through testing them, testing them repeatedly. As we saw last week, he tested them at Marah. When he brought them to an oasis that was completely undrinkable, completely bitter, completely unfit for what their need was, which was water. And then we saw a miraculous provision that as Moses threw the log or the tree into the water, it became sweet and drinkable. And then God led them on to an oasis called Elam. And that's where we left off last week. But they're going to keep going. The oasis was not a permanent stop. It wasn't heaven on earth. It wasn't journey over. It was a pit stop on the way in the wilderness. So they're going to continue in the wilderness. And lo and behold, they have another need, this time food. We're going to come back to water next week. And the Lord is testing them. He makes this clear in verses 4 and 5, if you'll look at that again in Exodus 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. There's the purpose. Whether they will walk in my law or not. So the purpose is to know God, but it's to know God through a series of tests. Desmond Alexander, commentator on the book of Exodus, writes the following. He says, Their time in the wilderness is a period of training for them. By confronting the Israelites with a lack of food and water, God tests their trust in him. Their obedience to these circumstances reflects the degree to which they trust him. 
the instructions concerning the manna both measure their faith in God and train them to trust him more. Whenever we need something, brothers and sisters, talking about deeply need something, God in those moments is testing our faith. James Boyce, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, now in glory, said, when hard times come into our lives, this is exactly what God is doing, teaching us to trust him rather than focusing on our circumstances. It's a lifelong test, and it's one that we need to adopt as our paradigm for normal life, that as we go through life, we are going to encounter hard times repeatedly, and those hard times are intended by God to teach us to trust him. So we're going to take the test this morning with the people of Israel. Got three points in my sermon. You have it in front of you if you have the notes. Taking the test, failing the test, and passing the test. First of all, let's ask the question, what would it have looked like for Israel to pass this test? Clearly, they don't pass it, and we'll get to that in our second point. But what would it have looked like if they would have taken this test and passed it? Two aspects that God was looking for in passing this test. Here's the first one, trust in God. Trust in God's ability to miraculously provide for you even when you can't imagine it ever happening. Look at verses 13 through 18. This is what God wanted from them. He said, In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was a face, uh, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Fifth, verse 15, When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, Mana, what is it? That's literally what they called it. What is it? That's why Moses writes, for they didn't know what it was. They said, manna. This is what the Lord has, or verse, uh, in the middle of verse 15, for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons, and each of you hasn't, that each of you has in his tent, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So this would have been, now this is after they failed because they've already grumbled. We'll get to that in a minute. But what it would have looked like for them to pass this test is to trust God to provide miraculously food for them in the desert as he did. Now, why does God put his people through these tests? I mean, does he have some deficiency that he needs to have, some, some itch he needs to have scratched to put his people through tests? No. One writer says, he does it for our sake, that we may know the peace and strength that come from continual dependence on him. See, God's got joy at the end of this journey for them. And he's, he's trying to teach them that continual dependence upon him is the path to peace and strength. That the joyful life that is ours when we trust him and we see the truth of, his, of our trusting. One writer says, the happiest people I know are not people who don't have any needs, but people who experience the meeting of their needs by God. That's the path to happiness. It's to be put in a path of unhappiness so that God can then continually provide for you and make his grace and peace and strength known to you 
in a way that will yield your continual dependence on him, which will result in your happiness. So trust in God was the design of this test. The second purpose was to rest from labor. God was trying to show that he's a different God than the, the, than the gods of the Egyptians that they had been serving. Think about the first couple chapters of Exodus. They got no breaks. They were continually subjected to harder and harder labor, and then when they complained about it, they were given even harder labor, making their jobs even more inconvenient, more difficult, more long. But here we have God commanding his people to rest from their labor. In verses 21 through 26, God provides instructions concerning the Sabbath, which you will notice is a pre-Sinai institution. It's not even brought up in the... So when it's reinforced in the Ten Commandments, it's not as though that was the first time God ever mentioned something like this. In fact, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 as a pattern for humanity that God has intended for our blessing, that we would have one day in seven whereby we do not subject ourselves to normal, ordinary labor. And so one of the ways they could have passed this test is by demonstrating that they didn't have to go out and get manna on that seventh day, but could instead rest. Because keep in mind, they had to work still. They were in the wilderness. They were, they were packing up and moving on and setting up camp and caring for animals and families. And, but even when God provided manna for them, he didn't say, okay, open your mouths at 6 p.m., and I'm just going to drop food into it. And then you're going to go, om, nom, 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 and then swallow, and I'll do it again tomorrow. Feed you like little baby birds. Let me regurgitate and send it out. Ahead. Okay, that, that, that illustration is going to go really bad really fast. Okay, so getting back to the main point, God's not going to feed them that way. Rather, God's going to feed them by laying out like frost on the ground all this manna in the wilderness, and then he's going to say, go get it. Go fill your two-liter bottle, which is roughly what an ephah or an omer is, so a tenth of an ephah is like a two-liter. So go get a two-liter for every single person in your family, and that'll be enough for the day. And then when you, when you hit the sixth day, since the, day of, the seventh day is a, is a Sabbath, gather up twice as much so you don't have to go out on the seventh day and work to get the manna. So that would have been how they could have passed the test. Trust in God first, and then rest from your labor now, we've already seen under trust in God, why does God tell us to trust him so that he will provide for us and we will, be, we will see God as trustworthy and good and gracious as he says he is and we will be happy in the God who provides for us. But why does God tell us to rest from our labor? Tim Chester, commenting on the reason God commands rest, says one of the ways in which we demonstrate our trust in God is in our ability to rest. We can rest because we are trusting God to provide. If you can't rest, if you're always busy with your work or your family or your ministry, it's because you're not trusting God. You're trying to secure your own future or create your own identity or provide your own justification. You can make excuses, but that's all they are, excuses. So this is the idea here. And God ultimately proves himself faithful, doesn't he? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but at the end of chapter 16, there's a weird editorial insertion that is not part of the story. Look at verse 31. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like the wafers made with honey. This is Moses reflecting on this incident sometime later for another generation. 
Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So this is his reflection on later what God commanded of them, which is namely to take this manna, at least the symbol, and, and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol and sign of God's presence to his people. Look at verse 33. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, what's that? why did he put that in there? God kept his promises. That's why he put it in there. He was trying to say, listen, future generations, I know you didn't experience this story. You didn't, you're just hearing it from your parents and your grandparents. You're just hearing about how God provided miraculously. No, here's the visual proof that he did it. Look at the Ark of the Covenant. Look at its symbolic there that God provides for his people, that he can be trusted. And notice also that he says, the people of Israel, verse 35, ate the manna 40 years. Every single day for four decades, God did what he did in Exodus 16. Every single day, without fail, except the Sabbath, because he told them they wouldn't do that. But every single day, the, the main six days of the week, he would provide food for them while they were journeying through the wilderness. So God ultimately proved himself trustworthy. He said, listen, you could have taken this test the easy way. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to trust me when it's irrational and looks like things aren't going to get any better. But listen, if you would have trusted in me to provide and you would have rested from your labor... You would have proven me faithful. And here is the testimony to it here that 40 years after the fact, Moses reflects back and said, God kept his promises. Every single day, the people had food to eat. So that's the first point, taking the test. That's what it would have looked like for them to pass it. But they didn't pass it. And we don't pass it either. Here's point number two, failing the test. How did Israel fail the test? What did they do instead of trusting God and resting from their labor? Two things. Here's the first one. Anxious grumbling. Anxious grumbling. Look at the first part of the chapter in verses 2 and 3. As they arrive here, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the, the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. You know, that complaint's getting old, but it resides long in us as well. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, boy, isn't nostalgia just disorienting sometimes? I mean, they really look back and think that that was their life. We were literally sitting by the steakhouse every single day. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. Do we need to go back to Exodus 5 and see how it really was? Reread that chapter. There was no Texas roadhouse in Exodus 5 that they were living in. That was not the case. But it's really disorienting when you're suffering and you're struggling to remember history accurately. For you've brought us out into the wilderness, into verse 3, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's bearing false witness. That's a wicked sin to say that the motives of God is not to provide for his people, but to kill his people. And they are 
committing wicked transgression again against the Lord. And we see the way the Lord interprets it. Look at verse 7. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. Now that's an amazing verse. That shows you what kind of God we have. We have a God that in the face of grumbling gives grace. He says, you want to know how I respond to grumbling? Not by wiping you out in the wilderness, which he had every right to do the first time they did it, and he didn't do it. He shows them grace and patience, and he's going to show them that he's God, not by killing them, but by providing for them. Verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your groaning. And then you can imagine the whole congregation going, <gasps> Gasping. Or maybe they were just so, they had so much pride and swagger about them, they thought, God's not going to kill us. He didn't do it last time we grumbled which is a really bad heart. But God doesn't let that stop him from showing them grace and kindness. Then verses 11 and 12, And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. What a kind, kind God we have. So, they failed the test on the front end by not being willing to take it according to God's terms. Okay, God's terms were you're going into the wilderness, you're going to have to be put in a situation of continual need, and you will see that I am a good God who will continually provide for you. They're not interested in that. They don't want to follow God on his terms. This is the great sin, brothers and sisters. Lots of people will do lots of good things and do lots of be really nice and kind, but they're not following God on God's terms. The thing is, is that God is concerned with the people of Israel that they follow him according to what he said and according to the plan that he set up. And we got to be good with that. And they're not good with that. That's why they're grumbling. They're fine with serving God as long as he meets all their needs when they want them met. He's good. They're good with that. As long as you don't interfere with how I want to live or my comfort or what I want to do, I'll serve you. But as soon as you start messing with that, I'm not interested in serving you anymore. And that's why they grumble. Their grumbling is rooted in the fact that they have not signed up to be redeemed the way God wants them to be redeemed. And so the people of Israel have grumbled over and over again. In Exodus chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, they grumbled under Pharaoh. And then they grumbled at the Red Sea in Exodus 14, 11, and 12. And then they grumbled at Marah last week in Exodus 15, verses 23 and 24. And as we saw last week, grumbling is complaining from a heart that is angry with God. It is experiencing something hard and concluding that therefore God is not good. Grumbling is discontent made audible. It is the heart's content escaped through the mouth. It's the sound we make when we have a strong craving for something we do not have that we think God owes us. This is the way the Bible describes their hearts. Listen to Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. 
Psalm 106, verses 14, reflect, verse 14, reflecting on this very incident. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. See, it's disordered desires that give rise to sin. All sin starts in desires. It doesn't start externally. It's not the product of circumstances. It's not the product of anything out there. It's the product of what's in here. And what's being driven here is a wanton craving in the wilderness, and God put them to the test in the desert. Psalm 78, verse 18. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. So, they're not starving. Let's be clear here. They are not starving. They are not walking up to, in, the, in the wilderness. The picture that we're to get here is not, wow, look at those malnourished Israelites. I mean, they're barely hanging on. What kind of God is this? They're not anywhere near that. They've been three days, rem- or just, just a few days, weeks removed from what's happened previously, and they're already doubting God and saying, well, he's probably going to let us die again. The Israelites confused what they wanted with what they needed, and we do the same. This is often the source of our discontent. As Phil Riken puts it, puts it we, we think our greeds are our needs, and they are not the same thing. Our greeds are not our needs. Listen, brothers and sisters, the object of our craving need not be evil. It's food we're talking about here. I mean, this is fundamental. This is not a Mercedes they're asking for. They're asking for food. And so often, our cravings are not, the object of our cravings are not evil either. They reach, the Israelites reach for pleasures that were quite harmless in themselves. They're just asking for food and water. But their desires for these good things turn bad, and they become wanton cravings and, and uh, demands when they want them sooner than God chooses to give them, And they want them more than they want God. Let's just sit on that for a second. We want it sooner than God's willing to give it. And we want it more than we want God, even if he didn't give it. So too with us. We want a relaxing evening at home, but we get a call from someone who needs help. We want a job that feels meaningful, meaningful, but we're stuck with routine busy work. Or more significantly, we want the future that we planned for, but we get the one we never wanted. Unfair, says a voice within us, or that's not right. Desires become expectations. Expectations become rights. And instead of bringing our disappointment to God and following his words to steady us, we let unmet desire fester, and it turns into discontentment, and then it turns into grumbling. Philippians 2.14 meets us with this word. Do all things without grumbling. Really? Paul, come on. All things? He doesn't bracket anything out of that command yes all things wake up with a sore throat and don't grumble about it receive criticism and don't grumble about it pay a parking ticket 
or in my case, a U-turn ticket illegally in St. Louis and don't grumble about it. Can we get the offering passed for that? No. <laughs> Host house guests that stay really long and don't grumble about it. Discipline your children and don't grumble about it. Change a flat tire. Answer emails and do everything else without one murmuring word. I mean, if you're like me, many of us wake up set to grumble. Like, that's our default. And we move through our days with like this low-grade murmur at a great variety of objects along our way. And we dress it up in nicer words, venting. I just need to vent. Can we just call it what it is? You need to grumble, okay? And I do too. At least we feel like we need to. Or I'm just being, can I be honest for a second? Yeah, let's grumble. That's what you're going to do. Or I just need to get something off my chest. Cue grumbling. Or in Christianese, I just need to share a matter for prayer, Pastor. But God knows exactly what I'm doing, what you're doing, what we're doing. And if we really think about it, you do too. You know what you're doing, and I do too. And this is why Paul commands us to do all things without grumbling because non-grumblers are peculiar in this world. It doesn't make sense to people. That's the very argument he uses. He says, do all things, Philippians 2.14, without grumbling. Why? Verse 15. So that you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation among whom you shine like stars in the universe. See, grumbling is the product of the crooked and depraved generation. It's not the product of the people of God. And therefore, it makes us shine when we don't do it. So that's the first way they failed the test, anxious grumbling. But they failed a second way too, unbelieving gathering, unbelieving gathering. Now, this is shown in two ways. Look at verses 19 and 20. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. So he, he commanded them, listen, when you go out and gather the manna, gather enough for one day and eat it all. No hoarding, no storage, no refrigeration, no leftovers. Eat it all. Let it all be gone. Because if something, if you leave any of it, you're going to have some funk in your home. It is going to stink. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. And they, they woke up, and there's maggots all over the place. And they're probably calling Moses. Moses, we need you. I told you. And then he's grumbling again. Verse 21, morning by morning they gathered it each as much as he could, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. That was a mercy because no doubt in their unbelief, they would have gone out for repeated ones, you know, hey, afternoon, it's all gone. We've already eaten for, go, go get some more. We, we don't know if it's going to be here tomorrow. So God in his mercy just said, look, when the sun comes up, just melt that stuff away because these people are going to get ornery and not believing and they're going to go back out again and try to gather some more. So, 
Evidently, he thought it was best just to melt it away in his mercy for them. How kind of God. Sometimes he prevents us and he leads us not into temptation because he knows our weaknesses. So there's unbelieving gathering there, but then there's also unbelieving gathering on the Sabbath day. Look at verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. That's not like a historical narrative detail. That's an indictment of sin. They had no business going out there. Of course they wouldn't find any. God said they wouldn't, there wouldn't be any. But their going out is a manifestation of their unbelief. They said, even though we went yesterday and we got two, we're still, we don't know. He said every day. Or they're just not being careful to obey. They're not trusting God. What happens? Verse 28, and the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So that's how they fail the test. Grumbling is more than the voice of discontentment. It's also the voice of unbelief. And when we grumble, we grumble when our faith in God and his good purposes begins to falter. We're unwilling to trust that God is crafting this disappointment for our good. And we only have eyes for the very painful now. And so what we need to realize, though, is that God was intending all of this for their great good. And I want you to be reminded of that, to be comforted by that. Look at, hold your finger in Exodus 16. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Go three books over to the right. The end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is basically a series of sermons from Moses to the people of Israel. It's kind of his last will and testament. And notice Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 15 and 16. We're going to be back in Deuteronomy 8 a little bit later in the sermon, but I want to show you this right now so you can get a glimpse at the heart of God. Deuteronomy 8, verse 15 and 16, "...who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you..." We'll see that next week. "...who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you..." There we see his purpose. But notice, "...to do you good in the end." Don't ever forget that. Let that be on the doorposts of your house for every hard circumstance you encounter that he may do you good in the end. That was God's purpose. That's a tragic commentary on all those graves in the, in the, in the wilderness that God had to give because the people wouldn't trust him when he killed off a whole generation. Imagine every single grave marker saying, to do you good in the end, to do you good in the end. And they wouldn't do it. On every tombstone, carve the words, we grumbled against our own good. Here lies so-and-so. God had already told them that much, remember? Remember? In their first episode, in last, last week in Exodus 15, he presented them. He said, diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, and I will bless you, and none of the plagues against Egypt will visit you. But if you refuse, and they 
refused. They followed the raging mob in their own hearts. And we know the story. And so our own grumbling likewise relies on an interpretation of God, ourselves, and this world that is utterly out of step with reality. Of course, it feels like reality when we're grumbling. The serpent's voice always feels like reality. We grumble because we've diligently listened to the wrong voice. It's not the Lord's voice. It's our voice, or it's the devil's voice, or it's the voice of a demon. Instead of crying out to God, help me trust you, you are good, we mutter and we spill and we vent and we essentially say, God, your ways are not good. And so we, along with the Israelites, fail the test. So we've looked at what it means to take the test, trust in God's provision, rest from your labor. We've looked at what it, how they failed the test, anxious grumbling and unbelieving gathering. But you know what? God is a God who redeems. And this story is meant to point us to redemption. It's meant to point us beyond the story of the Exodus to the greater Exodus in the Lord Jesus Christ. So how can we pass the test? How do we get out of this natural, terrible, human responses to things? How do we get out of bad circumstance, I grumble? How do we get out of that? How do we get out of that? Well, this, path, this, this passage points the path forward. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Most of you have it memorized. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He, when you're tempted, he'll provide the way of escape. Do you know the primary context of that? Grumbling. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 is instructing us about. It's Paul's taking the example of grumbling in the wilderness, and he's saying, listen, in Christ, you don't have to fall prey to that. You don't have to fall prey to that. It, this, this trial, this temptation is common. Everybody goes through it. And God is able to help you stand against that, give you a way of escape that you can endure it. So how can we confront our tendencies to murmur and complain and do all things without grumbling? How can we move in that direction? Well, I've got four things as we wrap up this sermon. Here's the first one. Rely on Christ. Rely on Christ. I, I, I hesitated to start somewhere else, and I thought, you stupid non-Christian pastor. You don't preach ethical demands on God's people and not remind them that Jesus is the one that is the power and the help for us. So, so let's get back to the main thing. Rely on Christ. Now I want to show you how Jesus fulfills Exodus 16. You still in Deuteronomy 8? If not, stay there. If not, go there. Or if you are, stay there. If not, go there. Deuteronomy 8. Look at verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. Now let's just stop there. We saw just a minute, minute ago in Deuteronomy 8.15, or sorry, 8.16, that God fed them so that he might humble them and test them. And then here in verse 3, he says he humbled, or verse 2, he says, he humbled them and tested them to see what was in their heart. So think about this. This is one of the God's designs. That when we go through hard circumstances like this and we're tempted to grumble, 
one of the purposes of God is that we would see that. We would see ourselves as we really are. We would see the wicked, evil, vile grumbles that come out of us. And we would think, Jesus said, by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. I'm doomed. I'm so doomed. It's so wicked. And yet we, it's just the air we breathe, so we're like, let's do it. Give me something else to complain about. But when we see it according to Scripture, we see our hearts and how vile and wicked and how we need salvation and how we need somebody to save us. Who's going to come and help me? Who's going to deliver me from this penchant to grumble that is so automatic I can't turn it off myself? I can't save myself from grumbling. Who's going to save me? Jesus is. Jesus will save me. Why? Because he's not a grumbler. Look at verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, and did, did your fathers, and nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know this, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where's that quoted in the New Testament? Look at Matthew chapter 4. Jesus reliving the story of Israel. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's, that, this is recapitulation. This is him reliving the story of Israel. Israel fails, Christ isn't going to fail. He's going into the wilderness and he's coming out trusting God. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's doing this for you and me. He's doing this as our Savior, fulfilling Exodus 16. Where that, whereas they grumbled and didn't trust God, he's trusting God. And he was way hungrier than they were. Way hungrier. They hadn't gone 40 days without food. He did. And he fulfilled it. One more, one more passage. Look at John 6. Where Jesus applies the manna to himself. John chapter 6, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is the people who are complaining that Jesus has not given them another free meal. They came to him for a free meal. He gave it to them, and now they're coming back the second day saying, hey, can we get in on that free lunch program again that you're offering? Because that's why you came, right? Was to just meet all of our physical needs? He said, no, I didn't come for that reason. I came to meet your spiritual needs. Let me tell you what those are. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. In other words, I'm the manna. I am God's gift to you to provide for your salvation. 
that if you will trust in me and you will rest from your labor, you will quit trying to work to earn favor with God, you'll rest in me, you'll trust that God has provided me, I will save you. That's what manna is all about. It's about Jesus. It's about God in the face of our wickedness and sin and grumbling and wanting to have nothing to do with him. God sends a manna. He sends a man named Jesus to live in our place and die in our place so that we could be saved by him. Have you done that? Have you seen your grumbling as wicked and evil and you recognized in it, I need Christ? Well, Christ is offered to you this morning. All you have to do is need him. All you got to do is call out to him and ask him to save you from your sin. So that's the first way we pass the test. We rely on the one who passed it for us. We rely on Christ. Secondly and quickly, got to move quickly here, repent of sinful cravings. We got to recognize what's driving this grumbling and we got to repent of it at its source. We can't just ask God to take out the driver in front of us that's going too slow or change the circumstance in some way so that I'll stop grumbling. God can change your circumstances all day long and you won't quit grumbling because your circumstances are not what's driving your grumbling. Your heart is driving your grumbling, and desires and cravings within your heart are driving your grumbling, and that's what has to be repented of. That's what you have to say, I'm sorry, God, for. I'm sorry for the way my heart craves things it shouldn't. I'm sorry for the way my heart desires things in, t- in time that you have not promised to give to me. I'm sorry the way I demand things of you and insist upon things from you when you have given me everything I need and promised to meet, meet me with anything else I need down the road. You have to ask yourself questions like, what am I wanting right now more than I want God's will? What craving has become more important than God's commands? What desire has grown sweeter than knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Psalm 78, verses 23 to 29. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he laid out the south wind, and he rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. And we say, listen, I crave that. And God lavishly provides for me. How can I demand things of God when he is so abundant in his care and provision for me? So we repent. We let the kindness of the Lord lead us to repentance. We witness all the bounty that he's given us in our lives, all the salvation he's given us in Christ, every good and perfect gift that he's lavished on us. And we practice disciplined repentance for our sinful cravings. Thirdly, we respond with righteousness. We don't just put off sin. We have to put on righteousness. So what's the appropriate way to respond to grumbling? Gratitude. Gratitude. Every decision to grumble is also a decision to be thankful. And so we we offer to God our thanksgiving. We also battle grumbling with generosity. I don't have time to turn you there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul quotes Exodus 16 verse 18, and he applies it to generosity. If you go there and you study it later, Second Corinthians three eight or eight thirteen and fifteen, he's quoting Exodus sixteen, and he and he says to the Corinthians, just as God was so generous to His people, so you be generous toward God's people. Don't be like the Israelites. Be like God. 
Don't respond to grumbling with, well, I'm just not going to hang out with it. <laughs> Huffing and walking away. Respond to grumbling with grace, love, presence, provision, kindness. That's the way we should respond and fight grumbling with gratitude and with generosity. We must do this, brothers and sisters. We must. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Listen, we've got to conquer a... I'm not saying we're going to conquer grumbling exclusively, but we've got to conquer the practice, ongoing practice and habit of grumbling. That has got to be crucified. We have got to overcome that by the grace and blood of Christ and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The overcomer in Revelation 2 is the one who endures in his faith despite trials and hardships. Overcomers are followers of Christ who successfully resist the power and temptation of this world. An overcomer holds fast to faith in Christ until the end. And he demonstrates, he or she demonstrates complete dependence upon the Lord Jesus through thick and thin. And listen, brother and sister in Christ, we must fight grumbling. But listen, you will fight grumbling. And you will make progress because Jesus has ensured it. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 encourage all of us who are born again that we will overcome the world. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We're going to make it. We're going to overcome. We're going to fight grumbling. We're going to pursue righteousness. Fourthly and finally, remember God's word. Remember God's word. God's daily supply of manna is meant to remind us of our daily need for God's word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let me ask you a question. Which is more important, breakfast or Bible? Bible. Bible. Now, I'm not trying to put a slavish, legalistic paradigm, especially on you young moms. I'm talking about look at your life on a holistic scale and say, how many days do you go without breakfast and how many days do you go without Bible? You need Bible more than you need breakfast. You need Bible. Bible, 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 Bible. You won't deprive yourself of a meal, so you shouldn't deprive yourself of the Bible. That's the argument. Just as the Israelites did this daily, so we need to engage God's, wor God's Word daily. I understand there's going to be days we don't. I'm not trying to put any kind of paradigm on us for what faithfulness looks like. I'm trying to capture a, a heart and an appetite and a trajectory here. Just as they had to do this until they reach Canaan, we're going to need to do this till we reach heaven. They didn't, they didn't go a day without eating for 40 years in the wilderness, and we've got a long wilderness journey ahead of us, and we better be eating. We better be availing ourselves of public and private means of eating. Every time, is the Word of God going to be around here? I need it. If I can get there, I want to get there. If it's in church or if it's in the home or it's in a space of time in my life where, I'm, where I carve out time to be with, spend time reading and digesting the Word of God, that's why Paul tells us that we put away grumbling in Philippians 2.16 by holding fast to the Word of life. Hold fast implies effort and attention. Grumbling will rarely flee if we're merely wave around vague thoughts of God's goodness. 
We've got to take specific words from God and with ruthless intensity hold on to them tighter than we hold on to our words of discontentment. We've got to take those grumblings and remind us of all of God's provision, verse by verse, which is, and underscores the importance of having some verses in your memory too, or at least easily accessible on cards or something where you can get them out and review God's word. Like Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need according to yours, according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And we look at the budget and we said, honey, it's not going to, there's no, it's not going to make it this month. I don't know how to cut anymore. Or what are we going to do about this? Or that particular relationship or that particular circumstance or this particular family member or this particular workplace situation. I've got no idea. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. If it's a need, God has pledged himself to meet it. I got to trust him. So hold fast to that word. Let's pray. Father, we come confessing to you that we are so prone to glut our spiritual appetites with the junk food of a broken world. And instead of satisfying us, we are left more hungry than ever. And so we pray, help us now. Come to us. Jesus, bread of heaven, true manna, feed us until we want no more. And as we feast and as we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, keep your promise. Dispel our wanton cravings. Satisfy our thirst, fill us, nourish us, be the fountain from which everlasting satisfaction springs in every heart here. Help us to feed on you. Help us to be reminded that anytime we encounter situations for which we will be tempted to grumble, help us to recognize that too is a call to call on the Lord, to depend on you, and to wait for your provision. Help us to trust you, God. We're, 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 we get discouraged, we get lonely, we get tried and tested in the wilderness, and we thank you that you've provided this little Elam every single week for us, that we get to come to the gathering of the people of God and drink and be fed and be strengthened according to your word. Strengthen us this week for a week of gratitude for a week of walking with you, for a week of progressive fighting, grumbling, for a week of intentionally calling to mind and feeding upon the word of God, chiefly the word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray all these things, amen. Let's stand together and sing.